0: So what should, what what sort of Dharma talk should we have? Right livelihood. Right livelihood. Well, you know, that's that's a really, that's a good one, I like that one. You know, in terms of, in in terms of uh, the standard formula, right livelihood is, not making your living in ways that uh, are harmful to other people, so and, and actually if you if you look to see what that meant twenty five hundred years ago, it meant not dealing in arms or being a butcher or being a slave trader. I guess that was <laughs> a common thing back then but I think you know. I think the idea of right livelihood, uh, there's a lot in that that we can can take to heart and make use of as lay practitioners. I mean, for, uh, for, uh, for a Buddhist monk, uh, livelihood's a pretty simple question. So where livelihood really, where the issue of right livelihood Really takes on importance is for a layperson, and it's a complicated situation because everything is so interconnected <clears throat> there are a lot of uh, a lot of occupations that uh, you know e- even the ones that ostensibly are uh, intended to benefit other people uh, you can't always be sure that they're going to turn out that way. <laughs> some of them are misguided. But what does it mean to a lay person? For one thing, it means that you're, you're supporting yourself, you're taking care of yourself, you're not, uh, you're not being a burden to anyone else. I think that's one thing that right livelihood means. Um, and so in that regard, uh, if you're going to take care of yourself, then you have to balance the amount of time and energy that goes into supporting yourself and the effects that your activities have on, on other people. And I think that uh, the way to regard Right Livelihood is uh, not, not limiting it to whether you're an arms dealer or a butcher or something, but doing something Trying as much as possible to do something that is supportive of your spiritual practice as a whole. So that would mean doing something that, uh, that helps people in some way. That provides some very real benefit for other people. That even though you're making your living from it, allows you to practice acting out of loving kindness and compassion rather than just doing things because it's your job to do them so uh, you know and there's a lot of dharma practitioners going to professions like nursing and uh, social work and things like that for exactly that reason so that they can feel like the time they spend uh earning their living is also time that's uh spent doing things that are beneficial to other people and I think that is I think that's a really good approach it's a really good attitude if you're already in a profession and you have to evaluate it or a profession career job you've already you've already got a job that you're doing to make a living and you have to evaluate it in terms of right livelihood. That can be a very interesting situation to be in too. You might look at your at your employment and see that, to some degree, it, it involves uh, exploitation of other people, or to some degree, it involves some uh, dealing in unfair ways. I really wonder, you know, in in the. Uh, and the financial industries in this country and things like that. Could anybody be a sincerely practicing Buddhist and work in some of these uh, financial industries and look at what they're doing and, and, and believe that they're practicing right livelihood? And I think if somebody, if somebody was a Buddhist and that's the business that they were in, they'd really need to look at that very closely. And Either do something else, or try to figure out a way to turn around what they're doing, but that's be a pretty difficult thing to turn around, wouldn't it?:
1: <laughs> what, but about, what about all those people like I'm a retired academic, and mm-hmm. some of my retirement money goes into like funds. It went into like TGreF um, and stuff like that. And so those investments are made by by the people who manage those mm-hmm. funds. And I have no idea if any of those investments are in like arms or okay. harmful things. I don't know. You know, it's not because I couldn't find out. Right. You know, I could find out, but it's I haven't done so. But I think about it, you know, and I think about, well, even in ways that you don't even that don't compute, you know. You say you put your money in the money market or something, and it it's going. You you hope to help people, but that might not be the case at all.
0: So. You're absolutely right. That's a very good point. So, you know, you receive you receive ret- retirement income, and you have no idea what it's invested in. Yeah. And uh, as a matter of fact, you could probably drive yourself crazy. You know, okay, the the retirement funds invested in these mutual funds, and these mutual funds are invested in what other securities, what other kinds of stocks, and what do those companies do, you'd spend an awful lot of time. And you know what? The nature of things in the world, the way they are, I'm almost certain that you'd find that that money was invested in things that you'd rather it wasn't. (laughs) And then you put yourself in a situation of, well, well, what do I do then? Do I say, I don't want my pension anymore. I send it back, or you start writing letters to the pension fund managers saying, you know, uh,
1: get out of the slave trade. Yeah, get out. Of, yeah, <laughs> take
0: take the money out of the slave trade and, and uh, ballistics missile factory, and uh, <laughs> well, now I don't think, but that. that is a a very useful and productive way to go and I'm just guessing of course but I think the Buddha would agree with me (laughs) one of the practices that the Buddha tried out that he followed before that before his own enlightenment uh, he uh, he was for a while a practitioner of the Jain religion. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that. It still exists today. It's been around a long, long time. But one of their most fundamental beliefs is that that anything you do causes harm to something somewhere. Uh, Modern Jains wear face masks so that they won't accidentally inhale a tiny insect. And uh, they're, they're very, very careful where they step. And they go to these enormous extreme measures in everything they do. And the Jain ideal is that since anything you do causes harm to other beings, that you do as little as possible. As a matter of fact, the the true ideal, the ultimate goal, of a giant would be to starve to death. That's an extreme. And that's the kind of extreme that the Buddha uh, warned people against. And, you know, it, it, it is absolutely true that uh, you, you can't, it, it's the nature of life on this earth uh, that Life lives on life, and you know it, it may be that the, that the plants are more or less innocent, but everything else is living at the expense of something else. And of course, as the Jains were aware, you know, if you drink water, you don't know what you might have what organisms were in it. At each step you take, you might trust something. Each breath you take you might uh, uh, destroy something so that you just drive yourself crazy if you try to avoid any of that but there's a big difference between that and doing something for your own benefit fully aware that the action you're taking is uh, a cause of harm to others and in connection with this I, I think of uh, the Buddha's uh, uh, instructions with regard to eating meat. He told his bhikkhus and also the lay followers, but first of all, I told the bhikkhus, you know, when you go on your alms round, if you're given meat, then you uh, gratefully accept it. The only time they were not allowed to eat meat is if an animal, if, if they they weren't to kill an animal themselves, and of course that would be a violation of the precept. And they also weren't to eat meat that had been killed for them. And uh, you know, so now of course you you look at that and you say, okay, but if I buy meat in the grocery store, then every pound of meat I buy, somebody is going to Raise another steer or a pig or a chicken or whatever to, to replace it as long as it keeps being consumed. So, but we can look at that and we can kind of see okay, the Buddha is right. On, on the one hand, if you, if, if you go too far to one extreme, it gets ridiculous because then you wouldn't able, be able to eat wheat or soybeans or corn uh, or most vegetables for that matter. And as a matter of fact, the total uh, the total number of lives that are lost in uh, producing a meal from uh, from vegetables is quite high. There's all kinds of animals, uh, not just insects, but also uh, small mammals that uh, are destroyed in the process of, of producing crops. And uh, so. You can go too far, but on on the other hand, obviously, you know, killing or having something killed for you is going too far the other way. And then there's that ground in between, the the middle ground, the middle way, which okay, you might in walking the middle way, you might decide not to eat meat, or you might decide to, as long as it's not. Well, you could you could add some scruples in there and say that you won't eat chicken and pork that have been r- raised in inhumane conditions maybe you would only eat meat from organically raised and uh, healthy happy animals you know these are these are kinds of things that there's not any answer to to us right for it uh, for everybody and uh, When it comes to something like the issue of your livelihood, well, exactly the same argument might apply. Suppose you work for a grocery store chain. The grocery store chain sells meat products, including those from animals that have been uh, terribly abused and and, uh, exploited. Uh, So, does that mean that working in a grocery store is no longer a livelihood? you have to balance it out, I think. And you have to find what feels right in your own heart. Um, In a sense, it's good to keep in mind that in the following of precepts and in the following of your conscience, both, what's most important is what's happening in your own mind. So if you're aware of definite harm that's coming from an action, and if you are deliberately ignoring that because uh, of the benefit to you, then obviously you're making bad karma yourself right if you on the other hand you know if it's not in the, if, if that concern is not in your mind stream and what you are instead concerned with is you know, for example you're, you're doing a job and you're, you haven't really thought about what other <coughs> negative consequences it might have but you're doing this job because um, it uh, it allows you to carry out the rest of your spiritual practice. It, it, it makes you enough of a living without being greedy and excessive. Uh, it doesn't uh, leave you exhausted and stressed out so that it's difficult for you to do your practice afterwards. If it gives you an opportunity to meet and help other people and, you know, pass on some degree of goodwill and happiness and assistance in the world. You know, if you're doing your job and that's how you're seeing it, you're seeing it in terms of all the positives that come in terms of promoting your spiritual practice, allowing you to practice love and kindness, uh, open-heartedness, generosity in your interactions with other people, then it's Obviously, going to fall into the good karma category, right? But um, it still could be that if you look closely enough, that you know that there was there would be some harm coming. As a matter of fact, I think there's probably very, very few things that you could do that, if you looked into them far enough, aren't causing harm. I mean, I think the James were right. To be alive means that you're causing some harm to something somewhere. Mm -hmm. But the point is, if that's not your intention, and if you're not in this place of being willing to do that in spite of being aware of it for the sake of your own desire, then, you know, I I think that's, that's the middle road that you've got to walk. But I think what makes the idea of Right Livelihood most interesting to me, at least in terms of what I've been thinking of lately, is that Right Livelihood is what supports you in your spiritual practice and it, and what you do in, in your livelihood, if it allows you to practice while you're doing it, if it's a job that you can do mindfully. If all of your interactions with other people can be done not only mindfully but coming from a wholesome place of, of loving kindness and generosity, that's that's really right livelihood, and that's think I think that's where it becomes really important. A lot of people think young people concerned, you know, what am I going to do with my life? Well, I want to do something that's really satisfying. But Even if they think of noble activities as satisfying. I want to be a a noble do-gooder. But why? Do they want to be a noble do-gooder so that they feel good about themselves? Then that's that's not really quite the same thing as I want to do this same thing for the sake of the benefit that it brings to other people. And so I think real... Uh, right livelihood is where granted as a layperson you need to make your own living, but if you can say everything else beyond the fact that I have to do some kind of work and receive some kind of pay to live, if then everything else becomes based on the criteria of, uh, uh, of how does this contribute to uh, leading a spiritual life and following a spiritual path and carrying out your spiritual practices then that's right livelihood and then you can become a nurse for the sake of helping people and not only that it pays your bills as well you know or you can do whatever it is that you do people the, the age of uh, uh we are usually already settled in. We're not at that stage of trying to figure out what we're going to do with our life. Although, it quite often happens unexpectedly. But, oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, <yeah. hello. laughs> Chopped liver
2: over here. <laughs> so, 80-year-old retirement, we all have to look forward
0: to. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, uh, 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 since not everyone is in... Judy's situation. <laughs> Although, keep in mind that any one of you could suddenly find yourself in that "what What am I going to do when I grow up?" situation, <laughs> when when you suddenly discover that what you were doing is not going to continue. But anyway, I'm assuming. Well, I, I, that I, I know that if some people, some of you are retired, some of you are still working, and. And you're probably not going to completely change your, your career path right now. I mean, you're totally engrossed <laughs> in it. You can't get loose from it. I don't know what you do, Bob. It's probably the same thing, though. It's like, <laughs> it might that not be, but at the, so then Right Livelihood is more in terms of working with what you've already got, you know, yeah. right? It's sort of saying, okay, here's. here's where I am, where can I go from here? And maybe it's not really that different. (laughs) What's
1: that? I said he was an arms merchant. I'm just teasing.
0: (laughs) 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 But uh, at one point in my (laughs) life, (laughs) at one point in my life, I was a newly minted PhD. I had all kinds of Wonderful offers to at uh, very to work in very prestigious universities and prestigious labs with uh, with well known people, and it was the thing that when I when I a few years earlier as a graduate student it was it was precisely the kind of goal that I hoped that uh, that I would be able to achieve. But in the meantime. I had become a Buddhist and started practicing Buddhism. And here I was doing laboratory research that involved the wholesale slaughter of large numbers of of small animals, uh, mainly rats, spirits, and cats. And, you know, there was just, there was no way. I had, I had the, the two best offers I had, one was University of California San Diego and the other was uh, the University uh, in Rio de Janeiro
2: mm-hmm.
0: and and I really liked the idea of maybe going and living in Brazil and you know, seeing what that was like for a while do a postdoc <laughs> there but I instead I, I, I quit and did start all over I ended up I took a year off and Lived in the mountains, uh, looking after youth hostels uh, for a year, and then I went and uh, uh, opened a bookstore and ran a bookstore for a while—a spiritual bookstore. You know, but then finally I went back into academia and said, "Okay, I'll teach, but I won't do research." <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. But sometimes you have to make those kinds of decisions. Mm-hmm. But it's. Uh, uh, the same thing, you know, you can go overboard too. Mm -hmm. You can go overboard. so um, I wouldn't worry too much about the right livelihood aspect of collecting your pension. (laughs) On the other hand, since it's come into your mind, it seems to me like it might be a most reasonable thing to at least see if there is anything that you can do to create an influence. And I know this has happened other places. I don't know about the United States, but in Canada, you know, uh, people uh, get together and they demand that things like pension funds or mutual funds and things like that that they invest in, they go to, uh, they say, look, you know, we want this to go into these kinds of investments, and not those, you know, mm-hmm. green investments. Or, so I don't know if such a thing. a possibility exists, but since you thought of it, you might as well find out. Yeah, it's
1: kind of been plain. its 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 way in my mind. And then in a Buddhist magazine, Buddha Dharma or something like that, they um, they had an advertisement for some particular fund, and I thought, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, this is bound to be a Buddhist fund. So I called up and I talked to the people, and they said, well. You have to start with a million dollars." And I just
0: thought, well, no. That took care of the rest of the conversation, (laughs) didn't it? But they do have funds.
1: -hmm. They do have funds that don't invest in certain things. Mm -hmm.
0: They do. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and whether or not the people that run your pension fund would care or not, still, if you wrote a letter, uh, or or did whatever is available to be mm-hmm. done. Mm-hmm. You never can tell. Right. It might make a difference. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, I I, I like the I, I like the thought of right livelihood as you know it's. I I think if you're a lay person in the world, right livelihood should be you know boy that should be the main thing that you're thinking about because that's what sets. Well, that together with uh, marriage, I guess. Uh, or, or at least sex, is what sets a, a, a lay person apart from a monastic, anyway. And since livelihood is is the most important distinction between you and a nun somewhere, then uh, that should be right in the right in the forefront of your thought. It's good to do things like serving people, helping people to be happy, helping people to overcome their problems, uh, helping people to heal, and and, uh, of course helping people to meditate and learn the Dharma and Mm -hmm. practice it.
2: That's right, livelihood.
0: <laughs> that's right, livelihood. I, that's what I think is right, livelihood. Yeah. Anything else that uh, is on your minds? I went uh, over the allocated talking period. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I didn't. Must have just had the timer set wrong. So yes, we've got we've got time to, to talk about more things. We you know, and, and then go over. Yeah.
3: <laughs> well, this is a a bit of a different direction. Mm-hmm. But um, my thought was triggered by your mention of the Janes.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And I'm not at all sure how to ask this in a sense, but, you know, if you were a bird looking down (laughs) on the world. Yeah. On on human affairs, there seems to be, in no matter what area of of human endeavor that you look at, there are extremes. Yes. Way, way up. And, look, look, you know, if this bird looking down on human affairs did so with great impartiality, um, I find it so curious that there are such extremes in the sense um, that, that energy within the human heart and spirit runs to such extremes. It, now here's where I, I don't quite know how to formulate the question, but it, it seems to be a very curious thing. I mean, because extremes make life very, uh, uh, create great suffering mm-hmm. so oftentimes, um, People caught in the middle of extremes. Um, the earth, plants and animals caught between extreme endeavors, is, is there, uh, why, why, why is that in the universe? I mean, why, why are there such extremes?
0: Well, are you asking about extremes in human society or extremes in the universe? (laughs)
3: Well, I started out by this whole thing, by saying it wasn't quite, but, but because extremes cause suffering,
2: Mm
3: -hmm. um, so often, it it seems unreasonable that in human affairs there would, there would be extremes. I mean, we have not self-regulated ourselves. is there? It, does Does Buddhism have anything to say about such things? And, you know, in, in the realm of suffering and why suffering occurs? And
0: yes, and, and it's the same things that you've already heard before. The all of these extremes can be traced to to craving, to desire and aversion. If you think about it. Mm-hmm. They, it seems to me that humanity as a whole, that humans as a species, are out of balance. How they came to be out of balance. um, This happens in the universe. The universe is made up of extremely complex. Constantly interacting uh, dynamic systems. And so over time, every now and then something happens and a system gets really out of balance. And the system as a whole goes to such extremes that then there's some dramatic shift, which brings it back into some new kind of equilibrium. And I think that's been happening with human beings, however it came to be you know, that we have the capacities that we do, the intellect that we have and the ability to use tools, our hands, and our ability to speak and communicate and act collectively, it's so far beyond uh, the capabilities of any other organism on this planet. And none of these things are bad things. Our intellect is not a bad thing. Our ability to use tools is not a bad thing. Speech and ability to communicate is not a bad thing. But it has put us totally out of equilibrium with the rest of the planet. And so, I mean, the, the planet is covered with people, literally. It's you know, it's absurd how many people there are on this planet. And that's because... In spite, in spite of the brains and the hands and the speech that we have which makes us the most incredibly successful competitor and more capable of taking care of ourselves and assuring the continuation of our species, we are still compelled by exactly the same mechanisms that function in the in the simplest of, of organisms, mm-hmm. in, in in deer's and deer and wolves and squirrels and and mice and uh, lizards and birds and everything else, uh, the the sexual compulsion. I mean, one reason that we exist in such numbers is the sexual compulsion, though. And we we have the same compulsion rooted in desire for sensual pleasures and uh, for having the things that we uh, need for our survival. And we have the same compulsion to avoid those things that are dangerous to us and cause us suffering as all of these simpler organisms. But we have the capacity to act out of those and produce an absurdly out-of-balance situation. And that's what we've done. That's the extreme that we have. There's way too many of us. But it's not only that there's way too many of us. Those that there are of us feel like we have to have so much more than we really have to have. And we're willing, in order to have it, to do it at the cost of the planet, at the cost of other species, and at the cost of each other. There's nothing restraining us, you know. The most brilliant minds on the planet are actually devoted to how to take money away from other people and things like that, you know. And those, those, those minds are attached to bodies whose names are on bank accounts worth billions and they still don't have enough and it trickles all the way down to the person who already has more than they need and gets in debt because they think they need even more you know so so we we we're covering the surface of the planet with people and we're destroying things right and left in order to have things and then there's the other side anytime we feel threatened you know we we get riled up and we're ready to to uh destroy whatever it is that we see is threatening to us, you know whether we want to make war against another nation or uh destroy other animals because they're going to uh eat the flowers in our garden, you know, or you know all these all these different urges to destroy because they threaten what we have or what we want what we think we need. So how we came to be so out of balance in the first place, you know, maybe someday somebody will figure it out. It's really an interesting puzzle. But but we, nothing like us has ever happened in the history of the planet as it's been traced up to this time. We're something unique. And the consequences we're having are really, really bizarre. But now here's the interesting part, and this is where the Buddha's teaching comes in. And, you know, this is... This is how I would sum up the Buddhas, the the impact of Buddhism on society and ethics. Ethics, other than the role they play in helping a person to become awakened. Ethics is that that we can't continue uh, with the brains we have And with the other capabilities that we have, and with the collective power that we have, we can't continue to be uh, driven entirely by desire and aversion, by craving. And essentially the message was that we don't need to be. And not only do we not need to be, but it is possible that we can cease to be. How do we cease to be? As you know, uh, we've talked a lot about the individual level, but what I wonder about is, is, as a, as a, uh, as a species, <laughs> how does humanity change its values? Because the values of humanity are firmly rooted in greed and hatred. There's absolutely no question.
2: And delusion.
0: And delusion. That's all, yes, right and delusion. But there is no society on this planet that can honestly claim not to foster and encourage greed in its members and to reward greed. Even though we we have structures to try to limit the impact of greed, and even though we pay lip service to the idea, you know, in fact, all the societies do promote greed, and they also promote hatred. It's as simple as that. So, how do we how do we change the human race so that we no longer hold greed and hatred up as the ideals, and maybe we hold up uh, non-greed and love and compassion as the ideals? So even those people that aren't already awakened, that aren't already Buddhas, that haven't already overcome craving, we're born with craving. But that, but it seems to me, if our society didn't nurture that from the from the uh, the age, as soon as we're able to communicate with other beings, and we watch TV and we go to school and everything else, w- then you know. The desire and aversion that we're born with is, is fed and encouraged and caused to be out of control. What if we had a different effect? What if we had a society whose values were the opposite of that? And so that from a very young age, a person learned that uh, although they experienced desire and aversion, that these are things to, be, uh, to, to learn to practice restraint over. That might make a difference. I'm not sure, though. But you know, all we can do is try, see what happens. You know, we don't need all the things that we have, especially in this society. The whatever it is, six billion people on this planet could, with what we already have, uh, live very, very comfortably in smaller quarters, and everyone, with no exception, eat very well with the amount of food that's available. And if we put the resources and energy that we waste so extravagantly into things like health care, we could have six billion people living a simpler life, uh, being healthy, well-fed, and probably being a lot happier, because they wouldn't have, uh, on the one hand, those uh, people wouldn't have the stress of poverty, and on the other hand, all these other people wouldn't have the stress of trying to Always get more and hold on to what they have to and worry about what's going to happen if they lose it. So it'd be a lot less stress. But that kind of utopian idea, you know, I, I, as soon as I imagine it, the first thing I think of is, oh yeah, and then there would be 12 billion, and what then? You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, but I do. I do really clearly see that if you were the bird flying over the planet and you see all these excesses down below you, that you could trace all of those excesses very, very simply to the the same desire and aversion and delusion that we've been talking about all along. And that the reason that you see these excesses is because the desire an aversion and a delusion happen to be coupled with this incredibly, with with this really incredibly powerful mind and speech and and, uh, tool using capability that we have. Because lizards are filled with delusion, desire, and aversion too. But they don't create near as much problem. I think that what we need to work for is our own personal spiritual evolution and that we cannot do that separately from society as a whole. We are not separate from each other. We absolutely are not. Um, And so our own personal spiritual evolution will be a significant con- contribution to the spiritual evolution of mankind as a whole. And I might sound a little bit like Maharishi Mahesh in this, mm-hmm. but if enough people could become awakened to the extent of being free of craving, and it wouldn't have to be such a huge number, but if enough people could, I think the impact that would flow out from them could change our society's values and could we could maybe come to the place where human beings continue to evolve but not no longer biologically but now spiritually we take the incredible gifts of biological evolution and apply them in a different way and we free ourselves from the really crude just so utterly crude driving mechanism that uh, uh, that has got us this far i mean it's it really it's desire and aversion uh that over two billion years of evolution has resulted in there being a species as successful as we are, but it's time to let it go. you know now that we're here it's time to let it go. we have to go beyond it, and if we don't well. And then the bird, later on, will be flying over and say, well, nothing left. <laughs> because that's what happens when systems go to extremes. is They collapse, and then, of course, new systems arise, and a new equilibrium is established. But we're way, way, way out of balance. Does that help you any? To- <laughs>
3: Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's all, all right stuff. Um, is there, is there such a, because this, this sort of was at the root of it and I didn't express it before, is there such a thing as archetypes, as it might relate to extremes?
0: As it might relate to it? To
3: extremes.
0: Archetypes.
3: Are, are, are archetypes strictly a, 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 a human development or, or are there archetypes that, that exist in the abstractosphere, so to speak, yeah. to, to which human beings sort of stream, stream into? I, that was sort of at the root of my question. I didn't express it.
0: Well, that's actually a kind of philosophical question that's been around pretty much as long as there's been a written history of human beings. And, you know, this isn't the place to go into it. But just to point out to you that uh, Plato's idealism, or really Socratic idealism, because Socrates was, was the teacher that is really positing that, ultimately, reality is a world of archetypes. And, And so there's, since that time, there's been many different philosophical approaches to trying to sort that kind of question out. And what the Buddha had to say about things like that is that all of these are views and all of these views are ultimately wrong, but on the other hand, views can be helpful to us. So we could take some of these ideas and apply them in a way that perhaps is useful, as long as we don't, uh, as, lo- as long as we don't allow ourselves to get too caught up in our views. And, and so. Yes.
1: Have you heard the story um, about two people go into a hotel room or a motel room. There's a nice big bed and then a little bed in the corner. The big bed's by the window. And two people go in and one person goes, Oh, I really like that big bed. and um, And then another two people go in and one of those people says, Oh, I don't like that little bed. That's awful. And then another two people go in and... One person says, Oh, well, I'll take the big bed, and the other one says, fine, you know, I'll take the little bed. Anyway, <laughs> in Buddhist psychology, there are three types, right? The one that goes, oh, I really like the big bed, that's the greedy type. Mm-hmm. And the one that goes, oh, I don't like that little bed, that's the aversive type. Mm-hmm. And the one that, it doesn't matter, is the deluded type. And the moral of the story is, it's always better to travel with a deluded person <laughs>
2: That's a good story.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But they do kind of sometimes, you know, categorize and make archetypes out of how people are. Everyone, of course, is probably a mixture, Mm -hmm. but most of us have one or the other characteristic. Mm-hmm. And the other uh, side, like of the greedy type, is they tend to be extremely generous. And the mm-hmm. aversive type tend to be very wise. And No, the deluded type tend to have the other side of being very, you know, once they get over their delusion, very wise. And the aversive type is compassionate, has a lot of compassion. When they That's get over the being,
0: yeah. yeah,
1: so they're, yeah. you know, the negative and the positive
0: yeah. sides. Yeah. yeah. Well, we, we're all... We're all all three, though, yeah. and uh, not only that, but the, the, the desire and the aversion are uh, always com- com- there. Aren't really three types? There's the there's the greedy deluded, there's the aversive deluded, and there's the deluded deluded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because all all of the desire and aversion always uh, occur together with uh, delusion. But archetypes, they're ideas that we create in our mind and they're useful. They help, they help our mind to um, make sense of things. And they have their own reality. So, I like the archetype of the hero. So, did somebody invent the archetype of the hero? Or is the archetype of the hero an inevitable consequence of their existing such a thing as a human mind? What do you think?
1: I think Joseph Campbell invented was, the archetype was, of the hero. You
0: leader. think Joseph Campbell invented it? <laughs>
1: or, or maybe it was Ulysses. I mean, maybe it was uh, whoever wrote Ulysses. I forget. Yeah. One of those Greeks.
2: But
0: don't you think if, if, uh, if somebody hadn't written Ulysses, that somebody else would have. Yeah, so, I do. Yeah.
4: Well, there are, I mean, it's Shakespeare now, but the thing is, is that the, the mind, as you're saying, hasn't evolved, and technology has, mm-hmm. and desire has, it seems.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: But our, our foundation, however, our mind's work don't seem to change. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's, for me, um, many years of different things and to come to, you know, meeting you in, a, in this type of practice which is it's pretty austere. You <laughs> know, it doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles, archetypes, family <laughs> constellation, you know? But it's I mean this is a fun, very personal statement, but it's like what else do you have left, you know, without making it romantic or dramatic to 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 try to just Go in like this, and 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 not get get uh, aha. I mean, it's because it really can be so fun, or you can get devastated if you have a bad day. <laughs> but, yeah. You know, and it is. Um, but that really requires an incredible commitment. I mean, however people are doing it, and and I'm wondering how the Buddha would feel with all the diversity in the world mm-hmm. and the, you know, the incredible rightness that everybody thinks. You know, that God is on their side, no matter what side they're on, or. The money, it's, it's quite. Um, I guess it just becomes very individual, but it's it, it would just be so lovely if everybody would stop, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that, which probably won't happen. But
0: yes, that's that's right, <laughs> it probably won't happen, <laughs> which is why you know we, we have to do what we can do starting with ourselves right. and without any attachment to outcomes.
4: Now the one thing I have a question about, that. Mm-hmm. not to, so so that I, I mean I, 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 not just, I, mean, I understand that I guess, but then in in bodhisattva vows where one, if we are meditating for enlightenment and have taken at least in Tibetan traditions, I don't, we've taken bodhisattva vows with you, <laughs> and and to if you come to a certain level of awareness and you're. You're you're wanting to come back, and then I wonder about that. Like, gee, would I really? Do I, I'm not saying I would even either, but just being so aware of suffering and pain, by the time I reach the end of my life, maybe I wouldn't want to come back. And isn't the Buddha's teaching to? I mean, is it to reincarnate or to come back and keep helping, no matter what? Or can you address that big, big question? <laughs> that is a very, <laughs> I don't very. I not know that question. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's a very big topic. Yeah. Uh, yes. I it would it's something that's very well worth talking about. I'm not sure if Probably this not is, tonight. <laughs> uh, I i not I don't think tonight is the right time, but let me just see. Um, we we could certainly talk about it tomorrow night if the if the interest is there. Mm-hmm. But it is this if you on the one hand, practice to achieve your own awakening, which is also your own liberation from suffering. The important thing to remember is that the only way that that comes about is if you attain wisdom. And true wisdom, it seems, and you should say uh, true wisdom seems to uh, necessarily involve compassion,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and if if you don't know why I say that, I think you do know why I say that. But uh, wherever we see true wisdom, and all we have to do is look at the Buddha, and you know, as 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 Tim brought up the other day, and as it's why upon achieving. His own enlightenment. Did he spend uh, another forty-five years teaching other people? You know, this is this is a total expression of compassion. And anywhere that we want to look, we find over and over again where somebody possesses what we would uh, uh, regard as true wisdom. We find compassion is always there. So then we are selfish beings. And if we can direct our selfishness to becoming awakened, then if we succeed, we'll have wisdom. And that wisdom seems to inevitably involve compassion. So looking at it that way, we can expect to be compassionate when we're enlightened. If we're not enlightened, then we would still be burdened by the suffering, and we might have a thought like, you know, well, I wouldn't want to come back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the thought that I would want to come back, or that I wouldn't want to come back, either one of those thoughts is an unenlightened thought. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> because there is no I. Okay. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
4: worry about that any more for a while <laughs> well, we,
0: but you know it's something that, that we we can talk about um, I think we're trying to we, we're trying to have a uh, an understanding of Buddhism and we can't have an understanding of Buddhism unless we confront some of these questions that come out of all of these other traditions All these other Buddhist traditions you know and the Buddhist tradition it really takes some work because you have a lot of Buddhist tradition that goes on and on about reincarnation and puts everything in the context of you know multiple lives over a long period of time but then you have the Buddha himself saying over and over again no self no self no self empty 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 no self impermanent you know, so we have to sort out the confusion of this and the and the role that it plays, mm. and uh, that's worth talking about
2: yeah,
0: i think you I think in order i mean you could practice Buddhism and you can be successful and become awakened, but I think it's very helpful to also think through some of these intellectual aspects of, uh, of the path to.